Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This is why democracy is a very difficult and very time-consuming and hard thing to enact. Democracy is, is difficult, but it is essential. That was Yanis Varoufakis. He's an economist, politician, academic, and author. He was elected to the Greek parliament and served as the Minister of Finance in 2015. He's known for his insightful critique on the current state of capitalism. His work has both sparked controversy and stirred up a great deal of important conversation. In this episode, Giannis and I discuss his new book, Techno-Feudalism, What Killed Capitalism, exploring how data monopolies and what he calls cloud capital have already reshaped our society and economy and how they could further do so. We explore the role of democracy in this new era and how ownership structures within companies are pivotal opportunities for change. I'm delighted to welcome Giannis as our very special guest on this episode of The Tech Humanist Show. Hello. Hi, Kate. Hello, Giannis. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So right away, I just wanted to tell you that as wonderful as it is to be talking to you today, I have actually seen you speak before in New York. So I'm in New York as we speak, and you were in New York at that time, and you were speaking at the New York Public Library when Noam Chomsky was interviewing you. How could I forget? How oh could I forget goodness. being interviewed by Noam? My what an incredible thing. Yes, indeed, indeed. I, I felt t- totally undeserving and exhilarated simultaneously. <laughs> Well, it was a great introduction to you because I've been a fan of Noam Chomsky for all of my adult life. And I thought if Noam is interviewing this man, then he must be someone that I should be paying attention to. And sure enough, I really enjoyed what you had to say then. I enjoyed your talking to my daughter about the economy and I very much enjoyed techno-feudalism. So wonderful for us to be able to speak today. I'm chuffed. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's talk about techno-feudalism. Wonderful new book. Will you tell us just at a high level what it is that your premise with techno-feudalism? Well, the basic story is really very simple. To the extent that we grasp that uh, 200, 300 years ago, there was a major transformation where the feudal society, where power was bestowed upon the landowners, those who owned the land and who used the property rights over the land in order to extract what economists refer to as a rent. Rent doesn't mean paying for you know, your apartment. Uh, what it means is um, a payment that you extract courtesy of owning something that produces other stuff, like land, as opposed to making things yourself as a worker, entrepreneur, and so on. So that was feudalism. We know what feudalism feels like, even though we haven't experienced it, thankfully. Uh, we, we have a collective memory of a system where ownership of the land bestows upon those who own it power, the power to extract rents from the rest of society. Then there was this amazing transformation which really shaped the modern world, created remarkable technologies, uh, fantastic freedoms for humanity, and at the same time, the greatest depravity, poverty, uh, war, and um, you know misery uh, imaginable. So, you know, the highs and the lows, the highs being exceptionally high and the lows, that's capitalism. So what happened to go from feudalism to capitalism? Land was replaced by machinery. So those who owned the machines, 
the telegraph poles, the railroads, the production lines, uh, the electrical grids, they acquired the power. Uh, they superseded the power of the landlords. And it was a power to make profit out of machinery, out of what we call capital, therefore capitalism. Capital is not money. That is a kind of uh, representation of real capital. But real capital are the machines that pr produce the stuff, uh, which make the capitalists, the owners of capital, very significant players in the game of capitalism. So if we understand that, then my story is really very simple. We now have a second transformation. And the transformation is um, creating a new world again in which power is bestowed upon those who own a particular mutation of capital, a particular form of capital, of machinery, which I refer to as cloud capital. Uh, now, this is high-tech, big-tech capital, but we, it's important to make a distinction here. And I, I will ask our audience to consider two kinds of high-tech capital that are very different one from the other, however. They seem the same, but they're not. Take an industrial robot. If you go into you know, a factory producing iPhones or you know, MacBook Pros, um, you know, an Apple factory, you will find lots of these industrial robots doing things that humans used to make. Uh, and they're very high tech. They're all networked. They have software, they have hardware, they have remarkable uh, capacities and dexterities, and they replace human beings. Uh, that's that's not what I mean by cloud capital. Even though it's connected to the cloud, it's got software, it, it looks like any other kind of high-tech uh, uh, apparatus. But what you have in your phone, you know, when you go into Google, when you watch TikTok, uh, when you go into Amazon.com, that's cloud capital. It is physically very similar to an industrial robot. It's, it, there, is, there are servers, there are machines, there is equipment, there are hundreds of thousands of miles of optic fiber cable crisscrossing the oceans and so on. But the difference is that this capital, unlike steam engines, industrial robots, electricity grids, they are not created in order to produce something else, some good or service. What they are created to do is to have a very intimate relationship with you so that you train it to train you, to train it, to train you at infinitum, so that it gives you good advice and suddenly it has your attention. And because of the advice that it gives you on what to buy, books, music, clothes, whatever, you know, cars, uh, that makes you naturally, completely rational on your behalf, to listen to it, uh, to pay attention to what it says. And then that same piece of machinery <laughs> sells it to you directly bypassing all markets. So when you go into Amazon.com, right, and the algorithm that runs Alexa, runs the Amazon warehouse, runs the website, um, matches you to a particular seller of binoculars or, or electric bicycles or whatever it is that you're buying, hmm? it sells it to you directly. And that's not the market. That bypasses the market. There is a buyer and a seller, but effectively what you have there is a kind of fief, fiefdom, very similar to feudalism in the sense that it belongs to one person or to a very small number of shareholders, Jeff Bezos, in the case of Amazon.com. And what that does is it bypasses markets. So there's no market there. Yeah? The market is destroyed, effectively. It sells to you directly, bypassing the market. And what does Bezos make out of this? He's not producing the bicycle, the binoculars, the book, 
What he does is he charges 20, 30, 40% to the producer, to the capitalist. So essentially he extracts a rent like the feudal lords. So Kate, this is where I stop my story and say, welcome to techno-feudalism. You are not in capitalism anymore. The moment you entered Amazon.com, the moment you are playing around with TikTok or you know Instagram, you're not in capitalism anymore. You're using capital. And this is a great, the delicious irony that capitalism was brought down not by labor, not by socialists, not by Democrats. Capitalism was brought down by a historic mutation of capital. So it's cloud capital and cloud rent. Yes. And this model is facilitated by our participation, our participation in data collecting activities, data aggregating activities that then serve that data back to us in algorithmically optimized sort of feeds and recommendations and that sort of thing. What's so interesting to me about that is that as I read this, first of all, I've said for years, analytics are people, data is people, right? We're talking about the needs and interests of real people. We're talking about human communication, human relationships, human behaviors. But what you're pointing out here is that these devices, these uh, technology feeds, uh, the the e-commerce systems, that they are building upon our own desires and our own communications to serve back to us what benefits the owners of those systems. This model seems like it's gone haywire. It's beyond our control at this point. Are there ways to to steer that back into alignment? Are there ways, when you look, look at something like the own your data movement or something like that, for example, are there ways that we can think about bringing these things back into, into some sort of proportionality or uh, what's your thinking on that? It's always up to us hmm. to, um, to bring technology back under social control. It's always up to us. As long as we remain conscious and Mm -hmm. as long as we retain free will to some extent uh, or a capacity for free will, we can do it. But allow me to say that every word you said describing this, you called it model, this system is absolutely correct. But I would de-emphasize data Mm -hmm. and this idea that somebody is stealing our data uh, that's surveillance capitalism. There's an element of truth in this. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm not really bothered with this. Uh, of course, I, I am. I, I would like to have privacy. I would like to own my data. But it, this is not a question of simply data being transferred or stolen or taken. Mm-hmm. You see, the process as I described it, where we train the machine to train us to train it, you know, that's not simply a data exchange. It's a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we are developing a relationship with machinery, which is dialectical. In uh, What's the ancient Greek Socratic concept of di- dialectics, or the, the dialectical? I'm talking to you, you're talking to me, and when we leave this conversation, part of your thinking has become mine, and part of my thinking has become yours. This is what's happening with machines. Now, I'm not saying this in a dystopian way. I'm not saying, oh my God, you know, the machines are, are stealing our brains. No, I think it's fine. I personally am a tech enthusiast. I mean, I, if you take my phone away from me or my laptop, I'm going to be very miserable and very cross. <laughs> uh, but we need to understand that this relationship is extremely powerful. It can be used for good and it can be used to exploit us and humanity in a manner that has only been confined within the realm of science fiction so far. So the, the big question is this. For me, 
it's not what they know. It's not what Google knows about me. Google knows everything about me. It knows a lot more about me than I know about myself. Right. Okay. It keeps reminding me, you you know, last year, this time you were there and you were thinking that, right? <laughs> which actually, I actually enjoy. I don't mind it at all because of my memory is, is in pieces. <laughs> uh, no, what worries me, Kate, is who owns it? Because ownership, like in feudal times, yeah. who owned, was the land the problem? Was it that human beings developed better ways of plowing and toiling the land and producing avocados? No. The problem was who owned the bloody thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> the land? Mm -hmm. And what did that ownership do to their power to command others? So now we have a situation, you know, capitalism was always a hugely asymmetrical system whereby, you know, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Westinghouse, uh, they, you know, they, the owners of ExxonMobil have always had a hugely more power than you or I and or our audience. That was always embedded in the fabric of capitalism. But now you have a situation where not even the owners of cloud capital know how cloud, cloud capital works. And this is not, I'm not trying to bring to the imagination of our audience the images of Terminator where the <laughs> machine take over. No, I don't believe that's rubbish. That will never happen. Um, it will not happen for thousands of years, uh, if ever. You know, Noam Chomsky, whom you mentioned before where we were chatting, um, would, would argue that artificial intelligence can never, never become truly intelligent. And I think he's right. But that's a philosophical question. It's neither here nor there, at least for the next 100 years or so. The machines are not going to take over. But what happens is the people who own the machines, and it's 0.001%, we're not even talking about the 0.1% anymore, now have powers that exceed that of the United States of America in terms of the impact on our mm -hmm. daily end. And that's why, me being an old-fashioned and reconstructed socialist, I think that the old question remains pertinent. Who owns the means of production? Well, and this ownership and asymmetry that you're talking about reminds me of a part that you point out that it if I understand correctly your your thesis, it's not uniquely about the scale made possible by tech. It's also macroeconomic decisions made over the past few decades that have led to this moment, right? The privatization of the internet and the response to the 2008 financial crisis, among, among perhaps other factors. Are there other factors that I'm forgetting to mention in, in the sort of buildup to these, these conditions? Let's stick to those because they are mm. two major forces that have brought about, in my estimation, in my mind, technofeudalism. The first is you, you mentioned the privatization of the internet. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, those of us who are old enough to remember the original internet up until mm -hmm. the 1990s will remember that the internet was a capitalism-free zone. Mm -hmm. It was a collaborative thing. Even today, uh, in order to get into a, any website, you go to HTTP, you know, colon, slash, slash. Well, that, that's a protocol that was developed by someone who gave it away, didn't make a single dollar out of it. We're still using it. Uh, SMTP to send emails. Was the, that was all a commons. People contributed their ideas. They got kudos. You know, somebody created HTTP and became famous so famous that I can't remember his name. <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? It was a comment. And then what, something happened. When, when it became possible for billions of people to be on the internet and for trading to take place, 
There was one decision by the handlers of the internet, the originators of the, of the, of the internet, which made all the difference and led to its privatization. And what's that decision? That you and I cannot own our internet identity. And that was a decision. So today, if you're going to use, uh, you know, your web banking, or um, you know, you go and you you want to call a taxi, and you have to and you use Lyft or Uber or whichever taxi app you use, uh, you need to identify yourself, begging your banker who has your identity, to prove to Uber who you are. So effectively, we are begging on the internet. We are asking for permission from some conglomerate or bank to certify who we are. And that was the gateway into privatization. That's how it, you created Uber, Airbnb, and you know, all the other big tech companies that managed to monetize and therefore privatize the commons that used to be the internet. That's, that's, that's one force, a very significant force. It didn't have to be this way. Let me remind you that GPS was developed by the American army and given away for free. They could have given it free. They could have said that, you know, Kate, Yanis, you can identify the process and you own your identity. It's a digital identity in the same way that the bank can identify you. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing, the second force, which you mentioned kindly, uh, is where where did the money come from to build mm -hmm. all this cloud capital, you know, the capital of big tech? Because you see, some people make the mistake, I believe, of comparing people like Elon Musk with Thomas Edison, Westinghouse and Ford to today's Zuckerberg and... Uh, uh, Steve Jobs, whoever. There are similarities. They all have huge egos. They had them in the 1910s and 20s. Have them today, right? They all want to control the, the press <laughs> or Twitter right. or whatever. There are similarities, but there are very big differences. The first thing difference is where did they get the money from? The 1910-1920 group of mega magnates, big business, got it from private banks. Private banks didn't have the money to give it them. So they got together and they big, created big banks. And the big banks had at some point, once they started failing, to create the Federal Reserve, right? Because the failures were too, too large for bankers like JP Morgan to look after. Now, this time around with cloud capital, it was the Fed directly that printed money after the financial sector collapse of 2008 not in order, there's no conspiracy. I'm not saying that they printed money to give it to Zuckerberg. No, no, no. They printed money because Ben Bernanke and then everybody else following Ben Bernanke panicked because the whole of the financial system was collapsing in 2008 for reasons that had nothing to do with cloud capital. So they started printing money. Now, according to their own rules and regulations, their own charter, a central bank, whether it's the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank or the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or the Bank of Switzerland, they cannot simply print money and give it to you. They have to give it to the bankers. This is part of their charter. In exchange for debt, mortgages, treasury bills, and so on. And then the hope is that by giving it to the bankers, the bankers then will lend it to business, and business will create jobs and stabilize the Great Recession after 2008. Sure. That was what they were thinking, right? But because of austerity, the fact that this, the fiscal policy that was, went alongside with the money printing, the monetary quantitative easing policy, the fiscal policy was so tight in Europe and Britain and in the United States, both federal and state level. You know, people out there didn't have money to spend because of the austerity. And there was huge amount of money, of monies in the financial sector because of the money printing 
right. of the reserve. The only business men, it was usually men, sorry to say that, I was going to say businessmen or women, it was mainly men in 2008, 2009, <laughs> even today, let's be honest about that, who actually invested in real capital were the big tech mm-hmm. bros who actually invested in cloud capital. General Motors didn't. Ford didn't. Rolls-Royce didn't. Why? Because they looked at the little people out there and said, oh, these people will not be able to afford to buy stuff from us, so we're not going to invest. And instead, they took the money too. Big business, non-cloud capitalists, yeah? they took money too. But you know what they did with the money? They didn't buy capital goods. They didn't invest it. They took it Wall Street and invested, invested, bought their own shares, which went up and they became rich, but they didn't produce anything. It was the Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musk's and you know the the cloud capital or cloud delists, as I call them in the book, who actually invested. So the difference with the 1910s and 1920s monopoly capitalists, the Fords and the Westinghouses and so on, is that this lot, the cloud delists, as I call them, uh, effectively got free money from the state. Well, and to your point, the difference between a capitalist model where profit is the the dominant goal, right, versus this model that we're describing now reflects itself in the venture capital models of the last 20 years or so, right? That profit has not been the number one goal in venture capital. Growth at growth at all costs really has been the dominant model. But it's been growth through these kind of scaling systems of data-based access, the, the kind of techno solutions that use scale. Does that fit into what you're describing as well, this venture capital approach to scaling business and forsaking profit for the short term so that we can focus on growth? Indeed. Uh, how does venture capital work? How, how do startups work? Most of the startups that sprang up in Silicon Valley all over the place in America and in Europe, uh, the idea was hit the jackpot when it comes to a certain algorithm, whatever algorithm that is, part of cloud capital, or some device that works with a piece of software that produces a service, an app, and then immediately sell it, you know, Mm -hmm. do an IPO and sell it. Right. Um, That's rent. That's all profits. Now, of course, there is, there needs to be a background expectation that profits will emerge somewhere down the line. Mm -hmm. But that's not the point. The point, they're not doing all that. There's not, you know, those people in in San Francisco and elsewhere, you know, they don't work 23 hours a day in order to profit from the piece of capital, cloud capital that they create in a capitalist sense. It's simply through selling selling it to Google. That's the exit strategy. Exit strategy. Yeah. And yes. Google gets it, buys it very often to kill it, mm-hmm. to make sure it never sees the light of day so that its own cloud fiefdom, as I call it, is not threatened by a usurper. Right. I, you know, that's not capitalism. You know, Henry Ford wanted everybody to be driving a Model T. It was, you know, his, his objective in life. He wanted you to be driving a Ford. You know, now we have techno feudal lords, cloudalists. We don't give a damn what you buy because they're not making anything. They just want to control the fiefs, the cloud fiefs, in which all buying and selling takes place. And they live out of cloud rents. I think that, you see, this is, this is a major transformation. It's not like the 1950s and 60s when you had, you know, the, the, the large corporate uh, 
lords that wanted to flood the world with their own output, with what they produced. This is different. This is, you know, again, capitalists, they are capitalists because the, the cloud is a capital, they own, but they own a particular kind of capital that does not produce stuff. Right. That, that produces power, but not things. <laughs> and it produces the power to extract rents from others. That's why, that, that's the similarity with feudalism, but there's a huge difference with feudalism. In, under feudalism, if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, if you were born with, you know, in, in an aristocratic family, you didn't have to do anything. You owned the land and you collected rent. And you could do, you know, you could uh, do crusades uh, or, you know, do nothing or, you know, start a war. <laughs> but you didn't have to do anything but anything in terms of investing. Whereas the Zuckerbergs and all these people, they invest. They invest in R&D. They invest in capital. Yes. So feudalism, some people say to me, so you're telling me we've gone back to feudalism. No, I'm not. I'm saying that the next step from capitalism was a variety of feudalism which combines high-tech capital, investment like you've never seen before in technologies, something that feudalism didn't have, with the feudal form of rent extraction. That's really important. And I think that that clarification is is necessary, but it makes me wonder too about this generative AI moment that we're finding ourselves in. What lessons should we be learning as we look from that transition you just described at what we're now in and slash headed into even more, uh, especially in the way that generative AI has been built on the backs of extraction of content and data that existed already publicly on the internet, sort of another generation of what you're describing on top of the internet's boom 30, is it 30 years ago now? <laughs> it feels, makes me feel old. Uh, but that, does that represent an even deeper wrinkle or is it more of the same? No, I think that it is uh, turbocharging cloud capital. Remember, I was explaining cl cloud capital in the context of an algorithm Mm -hmm. which builds a relationship with you. Now, when ChatGPT5 is uh, launched and you can actually mm -hmm. speak rather than just type, imagine Alexa. What mm -hmm. Alexa will do in developing a relationship with you. So it's exponentially increasing the breadth and depth of the relationship between us and the algorithms. That's what AI will do. That's sure. already. It exponentially increases the macroeconomic instability of the system because if you think about it, when Bezos charges 30-40% for anything sold on Amazon.com and not just Bezos, Alibaba, millions of now <laughs> of such platforms, such, such thieves, uh, all this rent is extracted from the circular flow of income. You see, when you pay for, you know, you buy this and 30% of the price doesn't go to this company, I'm not even going to mention which, which one it is, um, <laughs> and, and goes to the bank account of Jeff Bezos. Who's not going to spend mm -hmm. it? I mean, how, how much can, can he spend, right? It is extracted from the circular flow of, of income, which means that it depresses aggregate demand. This is why the Federal Reserve finds it impossible to shrink its assets book. Because it needs, even though we have inflation, and it needs to fight inflation now after the pandemic, the short-circuiting of the supply chains and so on, the Fed needs to keep on replenishing 
the purchasing power of consumers because a large amount of rent is extracted from the circular flow of profits and wages and expenditure. So um, that creates greater instability. So AI will enhance the power of cloud capital and it will enhance the instability of the macroeconomy that we live in. What you describe of that dialectic nature of, of our relationship with the technology, for sure, I see how that gets enhanced by the chat GPT-5 and so on. I'm also wondering, though, about that extractive nature of the content we all create, the content we create because we assume that is it is our created intellectual property, and then how it, it can be detached from our ownership and subsumed into this generative model and then spewed out into new models that can then be monetized separate from our contribution. That seems like it creates a spaghetti maze of ownership and no sort of tie back to any kind of contribution or or ability to monetize even a creative contribution to the economy. What do we see that as something that if you look at music or or um, you know songwriting, for example, that's been hugely disrupted by by this this model. Do we see that as as playing out over the the this entirety of the labor market? Again, what you said is absolutely true. Everything you said is absolutely true, but it's not new. And Spotify has already appended the sure. music into before AI came in. Uh, now we're going to have a problem where we won't even know who actually composed the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or we already have a Beatles song, which is partly created by AI. It's a good thing because you know. Yeah. We, but but and the next step will be it will be creating a wholly new song that John Lennon never imagined, mm-hmm. uh, but sound very much like something he would have imagined. And now you have actors competing against their own AI clones in the labor market in Hollywood, and that's why we had the strikes and so on. But you know. Um, it's not desperately new. No. Uh, come to think of it, pharmaceutical companies have been usurping thousands of years of knowledge accumulated by indigenous communities mm. in the form since in the form of seeds, and they have been patenting them. Well, what's different there? You have collectively created and individually, collectively and individually created knowledge, which is in has has been appropriated and monetized by a conglomerate. Of course, this is now going to happen in every realm of our lives, whether it is writing an essay, writing a poem, whatever. But that means that in the end, uh, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager, the big clash was between left and right, you know, mm. private property versus collective property. Now, and that's part of my story as to why I think capitalism has died and we haven't even noticed it, private property is gone, is going. What is left is the power to control other people's value creation. And that is what cloud capital does. And with AI, it will do a lot more of it. Let me take a, a little bit of a left turn and ask you, or a right turn or whatever it is, <laughs> Let me take, a, take a different detour and ask you about what's happening with remote work. Because this seems like it relates to the distribution of, of how we're accessing the economy through technology, how we're contributing to the economy and the economic implications of remote work as in, you know, talent pools being more diffuse, uh, economic development incentives, perhaps not being tied as much to place. When you think about that, it's not, it's not exactly techno-feudalism, but it is a change society at scale that is mediated by tech. And it seems to be 
that it has enormous political implications and potential implications on uh, on local economies as well as more macroeconomic policy. And I just wonder if you have given thought to that in terms of how how what would you guide leaders to do? What would you guide cities to do? What would you guide organizations to do in this moment where uh, no one can seem to figure out what the right way forward in in the remote work discussion is? Is that something that you've considered and, and discussed with, with other leaders? Yes, indeed. I, I, I do mention, for instance, Mechanical Turk, Amazon's mm. Mechanical Turk in the book, where you have you know tens of millions of people, as we speak, doing peace rate work without, without even knowing who their employer is without any contract, without any kind of social security, any insurance. Um, so the, the, the complete uh, commodification of the labor market mm-hmm. uh, in a manner which uh, cheapens labor and um, just maximizes exploitation, creates an extractive economy on the internet, for an, an, extractive, an extractive labor market, which um, if we allow this to become the norm, then um, society will simply be unlivable. Unbelievable. The, the inequality will be so great that even the rich will not be able to dare to leave their homes. So you're absolutely right. But again, it's not a question of what, how can you regulate this? I don't believe you can. You know, the, the era of the New Deal with um, regulation on the banks of social democracy in Europe, where the government acts as a referee between organized capital and organized labor and says to the industrials, you know what, a share of your profits will have to go to schools and hospitals and so on. Another share will have to go to wages and conditions for workers and and pensions and so on. That can never happen. I mean, who's going to sit uh, Jeff Bezos down on the one side and Amazon's mechanical Turk workers on the other side? Or all the the employers who use mechanical Turk on one side and mm-hmm. all the it is simply not doable. Now, there are no easy solutions here, but I think that it is important first to realize that this is not something you can regulate. You cannot ban, you cannot regulate. So if before you allow a dark cloud to descend upon you and lead you to desperation that nothing can be done, the next step is to make the decision that in the end, what really matters is ownership of those huge amounts of cloud capital. I personally don't, I think I think we should see them in the end as public utilities and start thinking of them, of them as in the same way that we think of national defense. Nobody thinks of national defense on a user basis, on, on a user pays basis. That I, you know, I'm not going to pay for national defense because I don't care. And I will only buy as much as I want. You can't say that. <laughs> Either you have you know, an army and an air force protecting, or supposedly protecting your country, okay, and then everybody has to pay for it, and everybody has to be part of the democratic process of deciding what we want to do with our army. Do we want it to invade Afghanistan or not? I personally don't. But you know, these are this is why democracy is a very difficult and very time-consuming and hard thing to enact. Democracy is is difficult. But it is essential. So more democracy, but also it sounds like this is a policy intervention at some level. It's not; it may not be regulations per se, but it sounds like there need to be some sort of legislative solutions to to um, shift that data, or the the cloud rent, the cloud capital into a public utility, right? How how otherwise would that 
that shift be made? Well, in the last chapter of the book, echoing my previous book, which was a science fiction, political science fiction novel, let me mention the title, it was called Another Now. I tried to answer that question. Because this is, of course, the pertinent question. Once you have analyzed what's, what's going on, what I call technophilism, you can call it something else. What do we do about it? And the answer is not a simple one. It is not that we need to elect the right government to introduce the right legislation, because I do not believe that you, see, you simply legislate on the basis of constraints, of you know, telling Google what it can do and what it can't do, because they will always find a way of moving towards state capture, regulatory capture, and so on. And also, they, they will always be 100 miles ahead of the legislator and the enforcer. Uh, but I think you can imagine democracy being extended to a workplace, including the cloud capital workplace. So in democracy, very few people would believe that some have the right to have more votes than others. So this is my recommendation in the last chapter of moving beginning to imagine a world in which corporations, uh, companies generally, not just the ones in the data business, not, not only the ones utilizing cloud capital, start operating on the base one person, one vote. One person, one share, one vote. If you carry out that mental experiment in your head, you will realize that that would change everything. Firstly, it wouldn't mean state ownership. This is not some kind of Soviet communism. If you say that, okay, people working for Meta have one share each. And it's like a, a college library card. You get it when you enter, when you're hired, and you hand it over when you leave. Either you're pensioned off or you're thrown out. Uh, and then once you're in there, on the, all the decisions, you have the right, not the obligation, maybe something that some decision you, you don't care much about, but you have a right to vote on any decision that is made. And similarly, you could have juries of uh, users, of stakeholders, juries through sortition, random selection, passing judgment on the behavior of companies like Twitter, like uh, Amazon, uh, with uh, the capacity to suspend the operations or some of the operations of those companies. Now, that would make a huge difference. But of course, it would be a major revolution because if you had one share, one person on vote, you would have no stock exchange. And then if you don't have stock exchange, then the you know, banking looks very, very different. And then suddenly digital currencies produced by the Fed, the European Central Bank, acquired a wholly different role in uh, affecting payments between us, uh, giving us a way of storing our savings and taking away the power from financiers. And it also seems like, in a way, even if you can't take it to the fullest level, the fullest vision of what you're describing, that some degree of empowering employees and profit sharing or vo voice sharing, you know, in including employees. And I, I'm trying to think for our listeners who are leaders today, who are looking for the direction that they can lead their companies. It sounds like without revolution per se, perhaps revolution is needed, but but uh, in the short term, leaning toward more employee engagement and participation sounds like it would be a close approximation, right? The direction we want. Let me, be honest. Let me be honest with you. If you're a CEO, you're answerable to your shareholders. You're not answerable mm -hmm. to society, to the world, to the future, to the next generation, or indeed to your employees. You're answerable to the people who ask for the bottom line. 
Mm-hmm. You cannot be the agent of change if you're the CEO. You will be a bad CEO if you do that. Yeah. You'll be fired. And you should be fired. So I don't believe that CEOs can be the leaders of change. They claim to be because it's good marketing, but it's empty words. This is why I believe in the demos. The demos has to be the, the people. They have to be introduced back into democracy. They are not part of our democracies. Our democracies are oligarchies with occasional elections, which mean very little, except when Trump wins and then he takes his wrecking ball to <laughs> everything that is de- that is remaining of what was once decent and proper. Uh, <laughs> I hope that Trump is watching this, uh, taking shot at you for inviting me. Uh, <laughs> having said that, that, there are things we can do that are not totally revolutionary, which are within the realm of the imagination, even of CEOs. For instance, imagine if we were to say that any cloud capital intensive company, big tech company that operates, will have to give 10% of its shares to a social equity fund on the basis that, you know, when I carry this fund with me, I enrich the capital stock of Google simply because Google Maps knows where I am and that makes Google Maps more attractive. So I'm adding to the stock of capital of Google and yet I'm not a shareholder. And it is impossible to know how much capital I've contributed relative to you, right? But what if we say that in the end, we are all contributing to the capital stock of Google and therefore if Google wants to maintain its capacity to operate in the United States, in Greece, in France, wherever we are, it has to hand over 10%. I'm just mentioning 10% completely sure. as a number that I've drawn out of a hat to a social equity fund. The dividends that um, amass there contribute to a kind of basic income, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And you can even say then that we can have a jury that is selected randomly amongst the users of Google or citizens who actually sit they're represented in the shareholders assembly. Now, that is not, I mean, it, it, for some, it, it, it may sound revolutionary, but it is not. No, especially really. when you consider, you know, as you say, there's extraction in terms of the data, but also there's extraction in terms of the labor that's gone into the device itself, right? The the mining that it takes for the minerals that go into the device and the the work that goes into, say, content management for these data models that that power Google Maps and all of the others. So it makes a lot of sense on that level. Not just the mining. Every technology in this phone, whatever phone it is, was uh, created, was invented as a result of some government grant. Right. GPS, you know, Wi-Fi, touchscreen, the microchips, everything was a result of public investment and the public gets nothing back. Right. I'm also curious, you know, one of the things that I often talk about with my clients is alignment with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as a directional useful roadmap for how to think about setting your business on a course that that is human affirming. And I wonder if if you have a different roadmap, if a different sort of uh, guidepost that you look to or that you think about the, in addition to or perhaps uh, separate from the UN SDGs, is there something that you would recommend that leaders or people who want to help steer companies and organizations toward a better future that they be looking to as they think about this 10% social equity fund or any of the, the work that they might do that might enrich or reward people in a more equitable way? The ownership structure of companies, of these multinational companies, is everything. 
to me. Because if you don't change the accountability process within the structure of ownership and operation, there's very little that the United Nations, the OECD, you know, the World Bank can do. Having said that, you know, Kate, an environmentalist uh, was uh, debating with me only a couple of days ago. And she said, and she had a point about that. She said, you know, you keep talking about cloud capital. The earth is boiling. We are probably past the point of no return. And, you know, you write a book which is all about capital and machinery and who owns what. Isn't that besides the point? And my instinctive response was to say, you're absolutely right. We are like stupid astronauts in a spaceship poisoning the air that we breathe. So having a discussion about the software that we use in the spaceship is ridiculous. Okay. But the big question for me is this. Can we change the way that we relate to nature and one another without first grabbing control of the means of communication, exchange, and production between us? So in a good society, we will not be talking about who owns capital or cloud capital. We will be talking about how do we stop temperature from rising above one and a half to two and a half degrees. But you can see from COP28 that we just had in the United Arab Emirates, we had the head honcho of one of the most polluting oil companies in the world running that show. Mm -hmm. uh, and the social media were using their power, the power of cloud capital, to pacify the world that, you know, we are moving in the right direction. So we will never be able to stop poisoning the air we breathe unless we simultaneously work as activists to stop the poisoning for the air, but at the same time work in order to socialize the means of communication, the means of cloud capital, which are, as I was arguing before at the beginning of our conversation, usurping our relationship, our relationship to one another and to the machinery that we should be deploying to save the planet. I think that's a brilliant way to close these thoughts, as to close them all together and bring together the idea that ownership is what we need to be focused on so that we can redistribute what we do own and make sure that more people are flourishing, that our future is more secure and brighter. And those are some uplifting and inspiring thoughts, which seemed impossible at the start of this discussion. So thank you so much, Giannis, for bringing that full circle for us. <laughs> thank you for evincing this degree of optimism at the end. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. This episode was produced with help from our extended team, including research by Ashley Robinson and Aaron Daugherty at Interabang. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to all of our guests for lending their voices and ideas to help make the future a brighter place. I'm Kate O'Neill, and you've been listening to The Tech Humanist Show from KO Insights.